0: Hello, and welcome to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation tour-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck, waiting to chat. Hello, everyone.
1: Welcome to a new episode of the Faculty Chronicles. I'm Elizabeth Unni, the co-host of this podcast, chair and associate professor with the Toro College of Pharmacy in New York. Our guest for the day is Steven Peritinsky. Dr. Peretinsky is an associate professor with the Toro Graduate School of Social Work. After completing his PhD from the Columbia University, Stephen joined Toro in 2016. He's also a licensed clinical psychologist. At Toro, Stephen teaches human behavior in the social environment, clinical social work practice, and research courses. He maintains an active research program focused on the intersection between spirituality, religion, culture, mental health, and well being. He's also interested in cutting edge research methodology and serves as a consultant for a number of large ongoing research projects he was a recipient of the 2018 presidential research development grant and 2019 best faculty publication in social behavioral and educational series welcome steven to our show
2: oh thank you elizabeth a pleasure to be here
1: well your torah profile says that you are an active researcher so let's start from there Tell us a little bit about your research so that our audience have an idea about what you do in your research area.
2: Sure. So um, my research generally focuses on religion, spirituality, and mental health, um, particularly within the Orthodox Jewish community. I'd say about 50% of my publications are in that area. Um, I'm also involved in a lot of other projects um, related to mental health and well-being. Um, so. You know, just for an example, uh, some recent studies looked at um, comparing um, the types of diagnoses and levels of symptoms and treatment choices among Orthodox Jews versus other uh, demographically similar populations. Um, I do did some research on cognitive models of stuttering, um, some research on the effect of spirituality on suicidality among geriatric patients. Um, So it's really a a variety of things um, kind of clustered around mental health and mental health services.
1: Awesome, awesome. So, uh, Stephen, you come from Columbia University, which is a very research-intensive university. And Toro, as much as we love research and we do a lot of research, it's not like Columbia. So as a prolific researcher, please tell us What do you have to tell the audience? How to be a productive researcher at Toro? What are some of the tips that you have for us?
2: So this is really a great question. Um, And I think being at a university like Toro has both strengths and challenges in terms of research. So comparing to a a large R01 research university, the expectations are different at Toro. The support is different. Um, the kind of collaboration is different. Um, access to some of the grant opportunities is different. Um, and that is both, like I said, a, a strength and a challenge. So in terms of strengths um, and my responsibilities revolve around teaching and service and some research, I'm much more free to select research projects that interest me. Um, and you know the kind of research I do, some of it is, you, know, gets funding and is fundable. Um, some of it is very difficult to find funding for. Um, and being here at Toro gives me opportunity to explore the projects that I'm really passionate about, um, the topics that I that I care about, um, and write the papers that interest me, rather than trying to meet um, grant requirements or you know position myself for the next oppor- uh, you know grant opportunity. Um, so in a way, there's a lot of uh, strengths to being at um, a place like Toro. Uh, there's also the uh, collaborative environment here. So. You talk about how to be productive research at Turo. Um, I would say the number one factor is to be is to collaborate um, because um, some of the you know larger resources um, are not necessarily as available you need to partner with other people to be an effective researcher and I collaborate a lot within Turo um, and again the fact that it's a little bit of a small university that you know there aren't as formally structured labs Um, I get to collaborate. So, for example, recently I worked with um, Jennifer Zelnick, who's a professor um, in the program uh, that I teach in social work, on looking at the role of managerialism and how that impacts the health of uh, social social workers. Um, I also collaborate a lot outside of Turo um, and get involved in some really interesting projects. So the stuttering research is uh, someone I work with out of University of Memphis. I do a lot of research with David Roseman out of Harvard-McLean. Um, and so, one of the key things to be an effective researcher at Turo, I think, is collaboration. Um, so pursuing your passion and collaboration. Uh, another factor that I find um, helpful is you need to be creative about resources. So I, Turo does provide um, a fair amount if you if you know where to look. So there's um, you know an off, there is an office um, of sponsored research. We do have. Resources there in terms of grant writing um, and IRB and things like that. Um, you can connect with them, and they're you know eager to help and available. We do have software that um, is available to faculty uh, to enabling research, whether that's um, survey software or analytics software. Um, that that those options are there. So one is you know being aware of the resources that are present, collaborating with others. The other thing I often do is I I if I want really expensive data, I sometimes have to utilize publicly available data. And there's a wealth of publicly available data um, in any field. And I, have you know, over the years have kind of figured out where to find it. um, And I've done a lot of very interesting work Um, using data that would be millions of dollars to collect on my own. So for example, following uh, adolescents who've been convicted of uh, felony crimes for three years and evaluating them over a three year span and testing some very interesting hypotheses about the relationship between religion, spirituality, adolescent offending, and um, impulse control. And that would not be something that's possible. I mean, even if I Pursued grants. I don't think I could get the funding to do something like that, um, but the data is f- freely available. Um, or I was part of a many analysts project where um, they analyzed um, an enormous data set uh, of European data on the relationship of re- religiosity and well being. Um, and that was published in Religion, Brain, and Behavior. And I was one analyst among a team of analysts. So I guess to sum it up, what I would say is um, take advantage of the resources that are available. Pursue projects um, that interest you that you're passionate about collaborate with others, and some and search for publicly available data where that's possible.
1: That's great. I think uh, collaboration is something that um, we really need to be pursuing. but. Something that also sometimes faculty may be a little worried about, uh, wondering that it is to some extent being vulnerable, right? I don't know how to do this. Is it okay to say that I don't know how to do this or I don't have access to this, those kind of thoughts. So it is good to hear from someone like you to say that it's okay to collaborate, ask for help, ask for resources when you don't have one. So the other thing that might be a little bit struggle for faculty at times uh, is with self-motivation. So how w- what are some of the tips that you have to keep yourself motivated to do research on an ongoing basis?
2: So that's it, it's a lovely question um, because it does take a lot of dedication and motivation to do research. Um, research is very, it's exhausting. Um, it requires a, a variety of skills um, that most people don't possess all of um, and necessitates either learning new things or collaborating more, you know, most likely collaborating with others. Um, so I'll, I'll answer that. Uh, th- there's three ways I can answer that question. I can answer that question uh, personally, how I, I do it. I can answer that question as a research-oriented faculty member here at Turo. I can answer that question as a psychologist. Um, so maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do a blend of all three. Um, so how do I stay motivated? Let me start with the personal. I mean, for me, it's because I am truly curious. Um, and my approach to research is, uh, you know, like a child with a new toy. I love learning new things. I love exploring new areas of human experience. Um, I'm extremely interested in, Hey, what will turn out, um, so a big part of what motivates me is, is that kind of sense of playfulness and curiosity. If I felt research was an obligation or, you know, a requirement, I think in some ways that might might take away from it. Um, and I try to stay in that framework of kind of, let's see where this, where this takes me. Um, that's a big pay, a piece there. Um, the other piece I find is the social aspect. So I know I keep on talking about collaboration, but if you have collaborators, people that you just... Dis- talk to, people that you think together with, people that you bounce ideas or a manuscript or a project. Um, there's a social aspect to the research that keeps it going. Um, I get, hey, whatever happened with, you know, we discussed uh, this idea. Did you ever look at the data? Um, and that will kind of, oh yeah, I should really take a look at it. Um, so I find that there's a social aspect to it, to it too. Those, those two things really keep me going. Um, as, as a, you know, as a, faculty to answer. It's what keeps you engaged in what's current. It what keep. It's what keeps me enthusiastic about the topics I teach. Um, it's what um, garners, uh, I mean, to put it maybe crassly, but it's what garners a lot of respect um, and um, is valued by the people around me, whether that's um, academic administration, whether that's fellow faculty members, whether that's students, whether that's, uh, you know, for consulting or outside um, so I find that that's um, another thing that keeps me motivated. It is important for my career. Um, I do believe that it's, it's important for any faculty member's career to engage in some level of scholarship. It's, it's you know, the third pillar of what we do. Um, now, as a psychologist, um, a lot of it is uh, similar to other habits. I mean, dedicating time to it so there i I set aside time in my week that's research time i don't you know when you know don't leave it for when it's going to happen because then it won't happen so i have specific slots when you know not a lot because it's you know we're we're quite busy busy as faculty but i do set aside some time um i particularly utilize the summers so when i usually usually teach that goes right into research time um And um, I make sure to celebrate even small steps. So every paper that's published, every, um, you know, revise and resubmit I get from a journal, every interesting idea that someone comes up with or data, I, I make sure to celebrate that. And that also keeps me going.
1: Awesome. Awesome. The other thing that we often hear faculty talk about is the publication process, the whole idea of writing, you know, sitting down and writing this paper and then submitting it always knowing that there is a chance of it being rejected, right? So the whole publication process can become quite intimidating to faculty. So tell us a little bit about it. What is your publication process? When do you find time to write?
2: So not only is there a chance it will be rejected, it most likely will be rejected. And that is part of the process of research. I don't uh, look at that as a failure at at all. Um, I'll often, you know, even on the first submission, stretch the paper a little bit. I'm like, I don't know if this journal would be that interested, but I'd really like to get it in there. Let me try. Um, And it's okay uh, to get rejections. A lot of those rejections come with amazing feedback that you can incorporate in a revision of the paper or even in some future project. Um, So I look at submitting a paper as an opportunity to get insightful conversation going with people in, uh, who do research in my area that I have otherwise no access to. And I've learned a lot through it. I've developed a relationship through it and definitely um, it has enhanced my, my research. So I, I guess the one big part of it is I don't look at that as a failure at all. I look at that as part of the process. Um, and staying motivated, I mean, collaboration is a big piece. I could not write. I mean, I've written papers on my own, but it, it's, it's very challenging. Um, it's easier if you break up the work. It's easier if you have someone who's fresh to it, take a look at it as you're working on it. Um, you know, well, you know, if I'm writing a paper and there's a part that I just, I just can't get this limitation section, I just I don't have the energy for it, I have collaborators. Um, let them give it a shot. So I find that that helps um, for that as well. I also think people uh, ex- feel the bar is very high, and they'll never be able to do something quality enough to get published. Um, I, I, I think a lot of that is anxiety um, and not reality because – um, most faculty, and I've, I've read many things that faculty have written, and I'm like, you should really publish this. I've read things that students have written um, that are, are getting, you know, pretty close to what's publishable, and um, I really think that a lot of it is just um, not being afraid and submitting it and taking the feedback and, re- and revising, and um, it's also like any other creative process The the I find the hardest is to start those first five minutes, those first 10 minutes. But once you're, you know, you have your music going, you're listening to, you know, whatever podcast you're addicted to at the moment, and you sit down and start writing, um, it really does flow and you can get into that flow state. Um, So um, yeah, and I know, uh, personally, like I said, I block out time. So I know when, when my, now is writing time, and you know I pick a time of the day that I, I feel I'm most productive in. Um, I don't do it too often; it's maybe once a week um, over the summer, maybe twice a week, and sit down and and write for a few hours. And not always does it result in something that's published. Um, usually, usually, um, but um, I find just doing it, and you know, there's stuff that's sitting you know in a file somewhere that's I think never going to see the light of the day, and that's fine. Um, you know that's kind of all part of the process so i i I think just um being relaxed about it being willing to accept feedback um uh, designating time and allowing yourself to get into that flow state of just putting your ideas on paper and editing after worrying about you know don't worry i don't even worry about spelling when i'm first writing i'm just writing
1: i know it, it is so important right just to do that free flow um, not worrying about editing or anything just write it get the thoughts out there and then let's come back to it and start seeing you know making it the streamline and editing and all those kind of things so the other thing sometimes the faculty struggle about is the whole um, work-life balance right so you have so many things to get done you have got to do your teaching your surveys uh, and for, for someone like you there is a like, uh, active clinical practice going on then you go home you have family you have children so in all of these things how to keep that risk lamp burning
2: yeah it's really i mean there's no answer to that i mean it it does it does have a lot to do with having a supportive family um, and there's no question that we are all doing more then can be reasonably, reasonably balanced. And um, adding a significant amount of research on top of all of what we do um, is challenging. I, I do, part of it is, um, at least for me, research is fun. So I, I, I like my fun time is sometimes research time and I'm, I'm good with that. I mean that's a great day that I sat and wrote something or analyzed something. Um, another piece is I, I build it into quiet times of the year, like you know like I mentioned the summer, but other times when there's a little bit uh, better ability to balance. Um, I involve students from time to time or even um, you know so able to use like classroom exercise or things like that um, that contribute towards my research. Um, you you kind of have to be creative um, to find that 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 time um, when you can actually do it. The other thing is, um, you know, you don't have to work on a lot of projects at a time. I I I you know sometimes have you know three four five projects going on mostly because I'm collaborating. But when it's something that I'm doing myself, um, I really do focus on one project and just you know chew on it for a month. And um, you can do this slow. I mean, the time from when you conceive an idea, gather the data, clean the data, analyze the data, put together, start putting together the papers, sending out reviews. I mean, the research turnaround could be a year, year and a half to two years till it's published. So if you're only working on one project, um, the hours, you know, it's not that much. You can fit it in to work at a pace that makes sense to you.
1: Makes a lot of sense. So. Um- As a faculty, we all have our three pillars, teaching, service, and research. And tell me, how does your research affect the other two pillars of academia, the teaching and service?
2: Yeah. So I really view my research as essential to both my service, my teaching, and also my clinical work. Um, I think the best way to illustri- illustrate this is with the story. So this came up a couple of weeks ago. Um, one of the things um, that we were concerned about as a faculty over the course of this year, we kind of were talking about in some of our, our curriculum meetings, was the idea of grade inflation and consistent and um, kind of accurate grading. Um, and I thought, hey, this is a great idea for a research project. What are the factors in grading? What are the student factors? What are the instructor factors? What are the course factors? Has grading changed over time? Is uh, are grading trends? Is there any predictability to that? Um, so research project. So this is, um, in a sense, service um, and blending my service role to the department to understand our grading practices. Um, But it also is an opportunity to to use research skills and perhaps to publish, perhaps to not publish, depending on, um, you know, how interesting it is or, you know, if if the project matures um, into that, uh, that level of quality. But, um, I've, we found some I've, I mean just analyzing the data putting it together I found some fascinating fascinating insights into what leads you know to different grading outcomes both in terms of students and faculty and, and what predicts that And so um, something like that is very research very research minded but absolutely service um, in terms of my teaching, research infuses every class I mean if I'm not talking about, I'm talking about empirical findings in different areas. I'm bringing my own research experience to the class. Um, This is true of research classes, obviously, but even clinical practice classes. So talking about, uh, you know, working with couples and families and um, one of the uh, area of research I've done uh, uh, quite a bit of work in is religious conflict between couples. Um, and the impact of that on the family. And you know, that kind of conversation came up in a class and I'm able to speak from my own findings, from my own experience, from my own data, as well as you know, the, the, um, the other data that I reviewed in preparing the research that I've done. So it, it's just, it's right there, uh, right below the surface of my teaching. Um, and often um, when there's an opportunity or when it makes sense, um, it's very integrated. And I find that it's, in terms of student interest, students are fascinated by it when you can actually tell a story. Well, what we did is we brought a bunch of couples into the lab and we took out, you know, we videoed them and we asked them. That's very different than them reading some uh, dry journal article and conveys the information in a, in a very real real way. Um, so I find that absolutely um, being research oriented and, and, and get actively engaged in research help, helps my teaching um, and I find it informs my clinical practice as well, especially um, some of the, re- the the research I do, spirituality, religion, mental health, culture, and Orthodox Jewish community issues, there isn't that much knowledge out there in those areas. and they're very uh, kind of uh, understudied, quiet corners of the world of mental health. But for many of the patients I see that it's extremely relevant and the ability to, you know say, you know I really care about this because let me tell you, um, you know I, I, I think you know I, I did some research that reminds me of what you're telling me about. Let me tell you what we found. Um, it it, it uh, helps them feel like I, I deeply care and I'm deeply knowledgeable about the personal issues that they struggle with.
1: Awesome. Well, you know I think that was a great talk that you talked about the whole research. So when I'm walking away from this, I'm thinking of a few points that you said. The first one is collaborate you know, find someone else to work with. And that's, that's essential. The second one I heard is become creative with terms of your resources, data, or any of those kind of things get more creative. Uh, I also heard celebrate, um, celebrate each of your success so that you have that motivation to keep yourself going. And I heard two more things, which was so practical. I thought one was take it slow. This is not a race. It's okay. Take it slow. And the second one was keep it real. Maybe even the topic that you choose to do research on or the how, the way you disseminate your classroom. So keep it very real. So these are some of the things that I understood from your talk that hopefully we can um, use when we are trying to conduct our research. Did I get that right?
2: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic summary. And the last thing, and I think maybe the most important I would add is have fun. Um, research when done right is fun. I enjoy um, almost all the time I spend doing it um, and it's just exciting and interesting and engaging. Um, and if you, if you uh, kind of approach it that way and pick topics that you feel uh, that way about, um, the rest of it kind of just follows along.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Steven, for being our guest today uh, and good luck with your research on a regular basis. Uh, Thank you to our listeners for uh, tuning in and listening to our podcast. Until next time. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University system. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. So join us next time on The Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.